All right. Welcome to the AdaptX podcast, where we have conversations with people who are building accessible businesses, advocating for inclusion, or excelling in adaptive sports. Our intention is never to speak on behalf of those with disabilities, but give them a platform to amplify their ideas and their voice, and to have conversations with people who are making uh, waves in the movement of making industries and environments more accessible and inclusive. Today, I'm joined by Steve Sinko, who happens to be my running coach. Uh, and we'll talk a little bit about his involvement in uh, endurance sports, uh, how he's helped make that environment and sport more inclusive and accessible in his area in Delaware, as well as how he will guide me towards this Boston Marathon build over the next few months. Steve, thanks for joining us. No problem. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Uh, so maybe we can start with your first exposure to uh, disability. So for me, it was like Special Olympics when I was in high school. Everyone seems to have an origin story, something that inspired them to work with people with disabilities. Um, anything for you? Um, you know, I, it was funny when you were first talking about that before we got on here. Um, I really didn't know that I had an answer for that. Um, you know, I, I, I guess to some degree or another, um, there have been people with disabilities kind of loosely in my life. Um, you know, growing up as a kid around the corner, two of the guys that I hung out with their little sister had down syndrome. Um, so, you know, spent a fair amount of time around her. Um, when I was uh, in high school, we, um, did, uh, what's called blue gold, uh, which is a fundraiser for, um, uh, uh, special Olympics, um, and then kind of after that, it, it, I didn't really do a whole lot. Um, I would say specifically with people with disabilities or special needs, um, until I started working as a personal trainer, you know, in 2014 and, and got exposed to a little bit more there, uh, at the gym I was working at at the time, fusion fitness, um, we were just doing a fundraiser and a holiday challenge and, we were fundraising for, um, adaptive bikes, uh, for a nonprofit that was around at the time. And so I got to meet some people over the course of doing that became, um, you know, a pretty huge part of my life, Preston and Deb, uh, and their family and Preston's March for energy. And then I guess, you know, that was probably what, what steamrolled everything that I'm doing now. Um, but I guess to some degree or another, you know, off and on, I've had, you know, experience and exposure to, you know, to, to being around, maybe not necessarily working with people, but being around people with, with special needs, disabilities, things like that. It actually wasn't something that I had really thought about or ever put together, but I'm pretty sure at one of the first five K's I ran, um, with Jacob here in Massachusetts, uh, I believe. Were you there? In, huh? In Blarka? No. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. But I, I believe there was a fusion. Were you there? Yeah, there was a fusion van. Was that you? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, that, I, yeah that's pretty funny. Um, I don't know why that had never registered to me. But now I remember like parking and seeing a big van that had the fusion inclusion logo on it. Yeah, we came up. Um... Yeah, I don't. Is that is that right? Is that how you say it? Blurka? No, that's not even remotely close. It's that's Bill what Rica. I thought. We could, we could get, ever get it right. It's, it's Bill Rica, <laughs> but it it is spelled like Valerica in your defense. But um, why didn't you beat me then? Did you? Um, well, because so I came up um, and I ran with um, I couldn't I couldn't run on my own. So like nobody um, really knew me. So uh, I, I did all of the team holy paperwork to come up and be able to push. Okay. And so I, I pushed a guy named TK. Um, and, but I guess I, he typically runs with somebody else. And so the three of us kind of ran together and I, I think I'm a little bit faster than that gentleman was. Um, but the three of us stayed together. So that was why. Gotcha. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't know. That must've been 2015 or 2016, but then we, yeah. we reconnected in 2020. So we both went down to Atlanta for the public's half. Mm -hmm. Uh, that was like, at the onset of COVID, no one right. really knew it at Literally. the time. But I remember people being like, oh, you got to wipe down like everything in the airplane. Like you got to. And so it was like kind of when we got back and COVID was kind of in full swing. But uh, I ran awful at Publix. Um, we had borrowed a chair, just like a regular jogging stroller uh, from the Peace Foundation. It was a little wonky for me. Felt a little different than running with my with my chair. Um and no, but that's not the only reason I clearly wasn't in great shape as well. But then I had reached out to you and asked you if you would be willing to train me. And that's, I guess, 2020 is when the 
the goal of trying to run under three hours for the marathon uh, began. Um, but yeah, so fusion inclusion and then transitioned into move to include what was what was the bridge between those two things or? Um, so, uh, I mentioned it earlier, I was working, um, I started working, uh, when I became a, a personal trainer at fusion fitness center. Um, and so the owner of that place, uh, Nick, he, everything he did, he has, a, had a time, has a timing company now, which is fusion racing. So everything that he kind of did was, was fusion something. Um, and so, you know, it was, I, 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 we actually, when we came up to run that race in Massachusetts, I don't think we had started fusion inclusion yet. Um, and, uh, it was, it was after kind of doing a couple races around here, um, and, and in Delaware and then going up there and then thinking that, you know, like, why can't, why can't we do something like what team Hoyt's doing down here in Delaware? And that's kind of how it was born. Um, and over the course of, of kind of think like talking through this, um, the, the guy, Nick, who was the owner was like, well, who could we do it? And I think he was kind of stringing me along to get me to say that I wanted to do it. And. I thought I would might be Delaware is a small state. So kind of people know people and been running here for a while. Um, uh, and so we started it and then um, Fusion Fitness Center closed. Um, and we actually we were a nonprofit, but we're like we weren't actually um, 501c3 uh, through the government. Um, and so we kind of just wanted to separate ourselves because at the time there was Fusion Fitness Center, there was Fusion Racing, there was Fusion Inclusion. There was Preston's March for Energy. We were building Preston's Playground, a fully adaptive playground, um, and everything melded together. It was like, oh, you're with this is a fundraiser for Preston's Playground. Like, no, no, it's for fusion inclusion. And so we we wanted to kind of separate ourselves and go the route of becoming a fully funded a uh, five hundred one c three, and and then just kind of like make sure that we were doing our own our own thing on top of that. So it was kind of a few different factors that that kind of went together. And when you had, when you had me pushing Preston a lot, who was Preston's playground, Preston's March for energy at fusion races. And so we just kind of wanted to have a little distinction there. You had a successful individual running career before getting into the side of uh, racing. So what was that like? What were your experiences growing up with running and through university? Um, I mean, it, it was interesting. Uh, my, my, one of my, I'm the youngest of seven. One of my brothers ran, um, in high school and I remember going to his meets and I, I literally had no intention of running, you know, when I was in, in grade school, elementary school, I was played basketball and baseball. I was okay. And I just remember the, those guys that I was telling you about earlier that had the sister with down syndrome, we were hanging out with them and there I was like, yeah, we're going to play basketball tonight. And they said, no, we're going to cross country practice. And I went home, asked my mom if I could join. She said, yes. Um, and I was not very good from the start. Um, but as I got into the sport, um, specifically when I got to the track side of it, I just, I really, really enjoyed it. Um, and so I had a, I had a pretty successful career in high school. Uh, I went on to run, um, at university of North Carolina at Wilmington and, and university of Delaware. Um, and, and was fortunate enough to have a, a good amount of success there. And then, you know, when I got done, I always kind of knew that, that to some degree or another, I was always going to run. Um, so I stayed competitive locally. Um, and then just, you know, kind of got the marathon bug. People were doing it. So I gave it a shot and I was not successful at that at first either. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to see what I could do. And, and when I really started going all in on, on long distance training, um, you know, I, I kind of had a lot of breakthroughs. And when I was growing up, when I was in high school and college, I was a middle distance runner, 800 meter half a miler. Um, I did cross country, but I was okay at that at best. Um, but I also probably never trained properly for what, you know, you should be doing for five mile and 10 K races and things like that. Um, and so, you know, in my mid twenties, I started getting into the long, long stuff and embracing the, the mileage and all the stuff that comes along with it. And, you know, I had, had, had a lot of fun, got to do a lot of cool things as a runner. So it's been fun. what was your PR in the marathon? Uh, two twenty four forty three. And that was that at the time of, or still a Delaware state record or um it is well yes and no it is so i think i am still the third fastest delaware marathoner of all time um when i ran that i was second the the guy who has it i think he ran 220 from like 1984 or something and then there was somebody a few years ago who passed me it's an it's an age group state record <laughs> there you go I think, uh, I think how do your accomplishments 
how do your accomplishments as an individual compare to, I guess, your runs or your races as a duo? Um, how do they compare, I guess? Not not necessarily time-wise, but I guess, like, um, in your mind, the importance of them, the enjoyment of them. Um, you know, when I first started running, uh, racing with Preston mostly, um, and, and some other people locally. Um, I mean, anytime I, if I was in a race, I was in a race. So, um, it wasn't, I'm just out here to push. Um, I mean, yes, I was there to give somebody the experience of being in the race. But one thing I always said is that I'm giving them my experience. Um, when I go to compete, I, I go, you know, I, I did, I tried to run as fast as I could on that particular day. And so it was important to me that if I was doing, if I was pushing someone in a chair and running with them, I was looking to do the exact same thing. Um, you know, and along the way, I think when I, when I started getting to the longer distance stuff, um, because as you know, like when you run 5k, especially locally, like, you know, you can, you can get a cheap win if nobody shows up, things like that. And you can certainly kind of have to gauge your times. But when I started, when I ran the first marathon, Preston and I ran the Philadelphia marathon in 2016, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm always, I've always been time driven. So first and foremost, I wanted to make sure that we finished. Um, it was, you know, pretty daunting and scary. Cause I think when I decided to sign up for the marathon with him, I hadn't pushed him for in a race longer than I may have only been a 5k. Um, and you know, but I wanted to break three. Um, and, and we did that and we got a pretty fair amount of, you know, east coast notoriety um we're on the news we're in runner's world things like that and um the significance of what we were doing um you know because uh, back then you know with you running boston it, it, it's a little bit bigger now but at the time they only took eight duo teams at the boston marathon and so it, it became important to me to after that to kind of go out there and, and make boston be the next goal um and and while they're different you know i i, I have my i have prs with um, whether they keep track of them or not, I have PRs of, of, with people that different people that I've pushed at different distances and different races. So they're both significant. Um, you know, Preston and I, when we ran Boston the first time we, we didn't, uh, accomplish, we didn't finish. So, um, when we went back there, um, and were able to do that, um, it, it's, it wasn't our best race and we had hoped to race, but that was another one where, you know, it was important because of, of the history of, of, of duo team running. I mean, Boston is essentially where it all started with the Hoyts. Um, and so to be able to, to be able to cross that finish line, I mean, yes, I would have liked to have been faster that day. Um, but that's one of the few races where I can say that, you know, even though we didn't run particularly fast, I'm extremely, extremely proud of that because of being out there, being able to give exposure to, um, you know, what we are doing with duo team running and to make sure that people see that it's something that anybody can do. Um, it, it can and should be allowed pretty, you know, anywhere you want to do it. Um, there, there's no reason it shouldn't be. So, you know, it, it's like I said, I've, I've always been time oriented and goal oriented. So whether, even when I started doing the, the duo team running, it, there were still goals, um, you know, for me to accomplish with another person. Yeah. I mean, I never ran prior to um, running with Jacob, so I have nothing to uh, compare it to. But, and I sometimes wonder if like, I like you care a lot about our finishing times. Um, but sometimes you'll hear like, oh, it's just about exposure. It's just about helping someone participate. And Jacob, I don't know if he would fully grasp the idea of winning races. So mm. it's not super important to him if we win. So I sometimes wonder if like my pursuit of uh, always running faster, always doing better, really moves the mission of getting more people with disabilities involved or whether it's just kind of a selfish motivation of doing better. Um, um I mean, I, it might, honestly, I, I would probably say it's, it's both. Yeah. Um, because here's the, uh, when you're up front, people notice you more. So, <laughs> you know, if you're out there running fast and you are, 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 are coming in first or towards the top that you are, you know, there's more eyes on you. Oh my gosh, I can't believe he did that. I can't believe they run that fast. You know, when we first started, um, the, the way we operate at, at move to include is we don't, you know, we don't tie a chair to one particular duo team. We just have a, 
uh, we have 11 chairs. And so I just kind of coordinate people that want to ride and people that want to push. And, and early on, it was, it was hard trying to get people who wanted to push. They were very, very interested, but they were like, I'm, I'm not going to push like you. And that, that's okay. That's the, <laughs> at the end of the day, that, that's, I, that doesn't matter. You know, we, we've literally, we've only had one person who was disappointed that they didn't go fast enough because somebody walked mm-hmm. them, walked with them. And, you know, we took them for a run afterwards and everything was good. So, um, you know, I, I think running is a very inclusive sport, but it's, it, it's a, it is a selfish sport. I mean, you, you have to focus on yourself. If you want to be as good as you can be, you have to be selfish with your time, with how you're going to spend it, how you're going to train. Um, but I, I definitely think that, you know, when you see people running the way we have doing it, we're, there's going to be more eyes on us. Um, you know, that that's not taking anything away from anybody else that their achievements are not significant if they're not running fast, but there, you, there is, I mean, it's, it's just how the world works, how the yeah, world works. And <laughs> I, I think I've probably built more connections and a bigger network within the running world because of our performance. Mm-hmm. We're not always the only duo there, but you tend to talk to the race director afterwards, or they ask you about your training or your background, et cetera, if you have those performances. So, well, I think it is, somewhat selfish i mean running such like a black and white sport you either run the time or you don't and mm-hmm. i think that's what i like about it same thing like you don't accidentally do well you you have to put in a certain amount of training and time and your results are directly correlated to how much time you put in so that's what i really like about running kind of just can stack it on top of each other every every training cycle can build on the previous one um but i, I do think it's a relatively the the goal of running fast, I think does move along the mission of making this seem more impressive, I guess. Cause like with Boston, you mentioned only eight duos before 12 duos now, but if more of us keep popping up that want to compete and want to like push times, then I think it starts to get taken more seriously. So it's becoming less of a, a goodwill and a charitable thing and more of a competitive thing. At least I would hope to see. Yeah. I mean, when you think about it, um, you know, when I, I mentioned the Hoyts, um, who knows if, 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 I mean, if, if Dick and Rick are running four and a half hours or if they're not completing Kona Ironman, are they the household name that they are today? Yeah. Um, you know, um, so I, I definitely think it's, like I said, it's, it's good that, you know, there, there's certainly nothing wrong with being fast and doing this at all. <laughs> do you think there's any, do you think there's any way that, you could be faster running with the chair than without just like biomechanically. You know, my answer to this. <laughs> yeah. But the, the um, listeners, I, don't. I, I mean, I, I don't I, for, see it's, it's interesting. Cause I know we've had this conversation, at least text conversation. Um, and you kind of, uh, I, I think it's, it's different for you because as you mentioned, you didn't run until you really started doing this. And like for me, um, especially the, the faster you're going, um, you know, when you're trying to run a mile all out, how absolutely important your arms are, um, to driving your body and driving your legs. So to not be able to use them, um, you know, maybe for, for, for distance, you know, when you go up longer in distance, um, you know, being able to, lean on the chair just a hair to have a kind of different body angle depending upon what your normal form is could there be some truth to that but i mean it, it, it's hard for me it, it, from, from my perspective um and granted like you know i didn't start doing this until i'm trying to you know 13 or 14 years after i ran my marathon pr i can't i can't envision myself running 224 pushing someone in a chair um you know, but I won't say that you couldn't. Um, I think it's like anything else, the, the more time, you know, you have to train for what you're doing. So, you know, the more time you spend pushing the chair, the more, the more acclimated you get to doing it. If you do it once a week, you know, it can be a little rough out there. If you can do it two or three and, and do your long runs and some workouts with the chair, it's going to make a huge difference. Um, but I'm definitely on the side that I, I think it's harder pushing, um, especially when you so throw any sort of hill into it because um, you feel how much the chair pushes back on you um, and and how hard it can be to do that. And it, and it takes you out of your rhythm and your routine. 
Um, and even then you can't use your arms to get up the hill because you really got to push a lot into getting that pushing that chair. So, yeah, no, it, it's undeniable that any any sort of uphill provides a significant amount more of resistance. Even with our last marathon, there were just segments where like a lot of straight up, straight down. And not only is the uphill hard and you're basically like running as hard as you can and you're moving at a walking pace just to keep the chair going momentum wise. But then on the downhill, if you're holding on for dear life and you're sprinting. So you get to the top of the hill, you're trying to catch your breath, but then your chair immediately goes into that downhill segment and Jacob, <laughs> Jacob weighs 145 pounds and he's pulling us and we're sprinting. And it's just like, catch your breath and you're trying to catch your breath and you can't. But I think on like a, a flat slash slightly downhill segment, um, I'm always a little faster with the chair, but like you said, maybe it's cause I, I don't know how to run without the chair or I was never, uh, I never, I mean, it could be, I've, 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 there have been some times where I've, I've finished some runs and, you know, I decide to hammer it out and I'm kind of, oh, I can't believe I was running that fast at the end there. Yeah. So, um, you know, I think if you get the momentum of the chair going and it, it certainly could be so, but over the course of a, a long race, it probably evens out for sure. So, um, so Jacob and I qualified for Boston, um, under a little bit of a exception, I guess, but, um, it took us a few tries to get under that three hour threshold. Um, so Bay state got a flat tire Providence hit some pretty significant uphills towards the end that took us off, uh, the pace that we were running at. What do you think, um, was maybe different? You've, you've helped me with all those builds. So what do you think was maybe different in this most recent one? Or do you think it's more so just the cumulative result of three years of, of consistent training? Uh, I'll, I'll say a little from column A and a little from column B. I think, um, you know, I think one of the, uh, I think discipline, um, in this last buildup, um, was a little better. I, I, I think I've slowly kind of got you to understand maybe even slash negative splitting. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, in one of those races, I, I think, uh, that was one of those that you mentioned that, that was there, there. No, I think that was a virtual one you were doing. Yeah. There was a DNF in there and you were, uh, kind of hammering along at six forty or something like that. And then it kind of went South. And so, um, but I, I think it's, I think it's both. I, I honestly, I would say, you know, um, I'm not trying to sound old or say that you're young, but I think you're kind of getting into that peak for, um, endurance running. And so, and also that because you started a little later in life, um, you're, you're kind of accumulating mileage. Um, you're getting those workouts. I mean, you see that with your fitness now, when you, when you take a little break, um, you don't lose the fitness. You're still, you can jump back into it very quickly. Um, so I, I definitely think it was, you know, accumulating mileage, um, going through the buildups, um, you know, there's nothing you can do about a flat tire. So, um, and pushing through that. So, um, but then also just kind of embracing the, you know, like do what the pros do, you know, uh, it's, they run negative splits, they run even splits. So I think being a little conservative, you know, let the marathon feel good for a while so that you're ready to push hard at the end and feel strong and finish, you know, at a, at a good pace. So I definitely think it's a combination of both. I think, you know, you, you've, I, I think the last buildup also, you kind of like put it all together. Um, because you know, if, 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 as I recollect, there were times where I gave you workouts and you were like, what the heck is this, man? There's no way I can do this. And then maybe you're somewhat successful with the, with the workout. And then, you know, I, I give you a long run and you absolutely destroy the long run. And I know there were times where I tell you, well, if you can do this one, then you should be able to do this one. It's not like I'm pulling them from two different areas. So I think it was, embracing, um, just kind of embracing everything on your end, trying to, you know, I think understand that while I may be a pain in the rear end and a little grouchy, like I, I it is my intention to see you run your best. <laughs> um, and I think, and, and I, and, and I will say from my perspective, I kind of, you know, I, I, I know for a couple of those buildups, I was telling you, stop hammering, like, don't go too, too fast. And, you know, I kind of had to look back at my own training be like, you know, when you, when you get in that zone and you're feeling good and you want to go, sometimes it's, it's good to take advantage of it. Sometimes it's fun to take advantage of it. And so not being as critical as maybe I was in the past when you were hammering out some of those long runs at the end. And I think it was, it was, it was a combination of those things though. I think it's like know, a mental, like, I feel like sometimes it's a mental thing for me. Cause when you're doing the slow runs, long, slow runs, I, I understand the, the importance of them, but you're starting to think like it's getting hard towards the end, even if you're running slow, 
you're like, mm. damn, I'm running eight minute miles and I'm supposed to be doing this at 645 and a couple months. Like, how am I supposed to do that when I'm struggling at 17 or 18 on the slow long run? Mm. And I have to do 26 at a much faster pace. So sometimes it's just like mental for me. Like, I feel like I have to switch into a little bit of a, a different gear, but mm. I also recognize that that takes away a little bit from the stimulus that was intended. So I do think I did a little better at just like, accepting what was on the plan trying to trying to hit what was on the plan and then even with the speed work understanding that oftentimes it was effort-based i would sometimes tell you like oh trying to negative split it but this fourth or fifth round was a little slower because i hit like an uphill segment and you're like yeah as long as the effort is still the same like the pace doesn't necessarily have to be especially with with the chair but i wonder how like i think there's really no way around the fact that you have to accumulate a lot of miles for the marathon. And I think I'm still on the lower end. So I've spent these last few months trying to get my frequency of running up to six days a week. Um, even if it's only three or four miles and now I've been kind of stacking that, turning it into five or six, but I really think there's no way around. Like you can probably get to where I'm at now, which is a two fifty five marathon on moderate mileage. But in my head, if I want to get to closer to like a sub elite level of under 250 and low two forties. I really think there's, there's no way around the fact that you have to put in 60 or 70 mile weeks. Do you agree with that? Or I would say I, I mostly agree with that. Um, I, I think it also depends on, on what you're doing. Um, you know, another guy that I, I train, um, a friend of mine, Mark Coyle, who we ran together at Delaware and he was, he was even less of a distance runner than I was back in college. He was strictly a half miler and that was it. Um, and he got into triathlons. Um, so he ran uh, 247 pushing at Philly uh, a couple of years ago. And now I, I think it's, it's endurance work. So for me, from a, as a running person and a running coach, I would rather see people put the mileage in, but he was, you know, he was dealing with um, uh, Kona being, pushed back because of COVID and canceled and things like that. But he was doing, he was only running three times a week when he did that, um, when he ran 247 and, and his workouts from a running standpoint were, um, one easy day, five or six miles, um, one day of his workout and then a long run. Now on the other days, is he doing a two and a half hour ride? Is he doing an hour worth of swimming? Um, so that's the only reason why I would say I would slightly disagree, disagree with that, but generally speaking, yes, I mean, you know, when, when I ran, um, my best pushing, I would think I was running 60 or 70 when I was a marathon, a solo marathon runner. Um, you know, I was running a hundred plus miles a week, um, you know, peaking out at 135 and a couple of times and, and things like that. So I, I think there's no substitute for it because one of the important things is learning how to run when you're tired. Um, and you know, it's like, uh, I didn't say it when you texted the other day about you're chomping at the bit and I was going to say, Hey, everybody's chomping at the bit 18 weeks out. Um, you know, when you're 10 weeks out and you're tired of training and you're just generally fatigued, like that's when you really have to push through because that's going to simulate a lot of what you feel in the marathon. There's going to be ups and downs. There's going to be times where you're not feeling great and you've got an hour and a half to go and, but you may be fine and you have to work through that. So I do think, I do think mileage is key. I don't want to say it's the end all be all. Um, but I think the more you can do with your mileage, kind of the higher ceiling you will have. Yeah. I guess in the absence of cross training, definitely a lot of cycling, swimming, yeah. et cetera. You're not just going to run three days a week and run two. Yeah. Weeks. Yeah. Yeah. You can't, I guess you can't just get that cardio stimulus three days a week if you're supplementing it with other things, but I'm not too keen on biking, yeah. uh, especially outdoors <laughs> on the road. Um, how do you walk the line, I guess, between dedicated and dumb uh, like to me, I, I work a fair amount. So I often pride myself on days when I have to get up at four o'clock to get to the gym and I work for 12 or 13 hours and I still get my run in. Mm -hmm. Like I can kind of feel like some sort of like emotion where I feel like accomplished. I kind of tell myself like, Oh, like some people would skip this, like, because they had a long day and that sometimes fuels me in kind of a weird way. Um, do you think that is a bad idea to kind of push through on days that, um, you don't feel great? Um, 
I not necessarily. I mean, I, I think, you know, one of those things you just said, um, for running as long as I have been, um, you know, is, you know, you, you run cause you get the runners high. And I'm like, no, I don't. And I was like, I, I don't like I, I, when I was running a lot, I was running and training for a goal, um, to achieve that. And so I'm like, I, I think some of my, exactly like you just said, some of the days where I feel proudest of my running is when I'm like, either I'm busy or I'm just burnt or I'm tired and I still get out there and, and maybe I have a good run once I get going, or maybe I just get through the run that I intended to do. But like, there you go. You didn't see it on your rear end today and make an excuse for not going out there. Um, you know, I, I know there's a lot of, of today about training in certain zones and, and, you know, heart rate training. And I, and I think all that stuff is very good. Um, but I, I definitely think there's just something about listening to your body, um, you know, and, and not forcing it. And, um, you know, if, if you, because I've always kind of been the person where, um, much like you were saying, like I, I would, the way I would set my weeks up, I had mileage goals. I had my workouts that I wanted to do. And I was, you know, pretty driven to make sure that I hit them. And it kind of, you know, I'm able, I was always able to look at the sum of everything, but in the moment it kind of hits you when you don't do something that you wanted to do. And so, I, you know, I would probably only take like one day off every four weeks or something like that when I was training really heavily, because if I took one, I was worried I was going to take two, three, four. Um, but I, I think if you listen to your body and you run easy and you take care of yourself and you do the things you need to do, um, I think some of those runs that you were talking about, I think they're wins. Um, I, I think that's a, that's a feather in your cap when you can sit there and say that, you know, it's, it's easy when you train with a group. Um, it's easy to do it when you feel good and the weather's nice. Um, and it's beautiful outside. Uh, and those days when you get out there and you're, you know, where you are, you're looking at 15 degrees and, or you're looking at snow or rain or a combination. And, you know, even if you don't go outside, if you go on the treadmill, you get done what you were supposed to do. I think that is something that in the back of your brain or somewhere plays a big part, um, on race day and in, in the whole, and, and because, you know, the thing about the marathon is it's, it's such a, it's such a different event compared to everything else running wise, because you can't be ready for it in six weeks. It takes a buildup. Um, and so you just have to accumulate mileage and, and workouts and understand that, you know, I, and I know this is something I said to you, I think in the last buildup with, you know, I, I would give you some of the workouts and I, you know, cause we do everything via email and text, you know, not necessarily sure how you're embracing when I give you, 10 or 12 by 800 or six by mile, you might be like, that's a lot of speed work. And I'm just like, look, the, the, the volume, get the volume first, you know, getting six miles at, at faster than normal pace. And then if you feel good, go from there. Um, but I, like you said, I, I think those days are wins. I just think you have to be okay, runners are one of my biggest issues with runners is that they don't listen to their body. Um, you know, if, if, if you're not having any signs of, injury um if you're not having any signs of overtraining um i think that's a good thing to go out there and do that kind of stuff um i would tell i I'd tell a lot of people i say hey if you're not feeling it go, start start your run run for 10 minutes like if you're not if it's not going anywhere then stop and then you don't have to walk back very far or run back very far if you want to get back home but you never know what's going to happen in that 10 minutes you may loosen up you may hit your stride you may just feel better you know kind of escaping if, if it was a stressful day being in the run might just kind of clear your head a little bit. Next thing you know, you have a good run. So um, I, I am, I'm in favor of, of as long as it's somebody that can be trusted to listen to their body, that they make sure they're resting and they're doing all the things like hydrating, you know, eating properly. <laughs> yeah. You know, there's, there's work to be done. That's where like, I, I convinced myself I'm dedicated, but I don't always do the, I know I don't always do the small things. Running is easy. Mm -hmm. uh, when you enjoy running, that's the easy part of training. Um, like you said, it's the hydration. It's being disciplined with nutrition. Those are all things that I need to do better at. Um, can't make an excuse for, I, I never make an excuse for missing a run, but I'll, I'll easily make an excuse for not eating well or something because I've mm -hmm. been busy. So uh, there's definitely room for improvement, but that's that's a good thing. I think if I was maxing out everything and still was performing at the level that I was, then, um, maybe I would be a little more concerned, but it's, it's good to know that there's a lot of, a lot of room for growth. You had mentioned, um, last week when we were talking that now that 
I have two kids under two and I uh, just had a baby last Friday that like maybe during this build, I just really focus on the speed work and the long run. Um, that That's not to say I'm going to run two times a week. I'm definitely not going to run two times a week, but like, I guess kind of going off of maybe it's essentially the same question I asked, but like, how do I determine when I skip an easy run and when I try to find a way to force it in. But I guess we kind of just covered that, like listening to your body. I cringe. Like if I had one of those whoop things that I see, the mm-hmm. thing would tell me to never exercise. I'm sure it would <laughs> always, I'm sure it would tell me to just rest every day because I'm, um, cause I'm tapped out in some ways, but, um, yeah, I think I, I'm, I'm not concerned about getting all of my training in, but, um, do have to be, um, disciplined in those two key workouts, I suppose. Yeah. And, and when I was talking about that, I, I was saying more build from there, um, you know, and, and, and you were even mentioning about, you know, with, with, you know, your schedule right now, like maybe you got to plan a little more, um, you know, and, and things like that. And, um, and then just understand that every once in a while, life's going to throw you a curveball and, and you're just going to be busy and you got to scrap the run on the day. Um, you know, I, I think you don't want to be too OCD about it. You want to be committed. Um, but, understand that you know it, it's even even when i was running you know fast for me i, I always said I'm, I'm not a pro um you know i gotta have a life too i gotta kind of have some fun and have some enjoyment there has to be balance with everything um so as long as you can manage those things um and i said and be comfortable and understand that if you miss a run it's not the end of the world so that that's kind of like what i mean is like you know, your, your, your one is your long run and your one a is your workout. And, and, and we want to get those. And if those take the scheduling and you really need to plan for those, then that's what we do. And then, you know, we build from there. Like, yeah, would it be great if we could get a medium long run in during the week? Sure. Would it be great? You know, if you can, if you can run six days a week, every day, every week, you know, with the down weekend here and there and get to that 60 to 70 miles, but Hey, you know, if you hit some fifties, um, I think for the last marathon, that's what we peaked at was 55, you know, we had three weeks right around there. Um, so just understanding, like not putting any unnecessary mental stress on yourself about, you know, if you're going to miss a run or something like that, I think that's very important because I think a lot of runners get overworked about, and that's why a lot of runners get hurt. Um, cause they just can't take a damn day off. So. <laughs> Yeah, I've, I'm kind of trending more in that direction and uh, need to be aware of it. But um, how do you think my training maybe needs to differ leading up to Boston as opposed to the marathon we ran in May? Hills. Hills, more hills. Hills, yeah. Uphill and downhill. Yeah, it's, um, you know, it, and, and, and when I first started pushing, um, running as a duo team, you know, people ask what it's like, and, and I'm, I'm sure you, you definitely know this. I don't know if you have these conversations, but kind of like, man, I run some places and I thought they were completely flat and they are not. <laughs> um, and you know, everybody wants to talk about Boston and how fast the, you know, you have to watch the beginning because it's fast. And, and the one thing that I will tell people is that, there's just a knot of flat running. It, it's not that it's necessarily fast. It what beats you up is that you're just constantly to some degree or another going up or down. Um, you know, there's just not miles and miles of, you know, a five mile stretch where you're just running flat with nothing. And so to have those downhills right from the, as soon as you start the race, um, you know, you'll go down and up a little incline, then down and up and, you know, and then you have the bigger hills, obviously, when you get into the latter part of the race. So I think it's just being ready for those Hills, be, being ready for that. Um, it's probably going to be your biggest thing. So I think, you know, some of the, you, you really, at least I don't remember. I know when we first started, you were doing some work on a track, but I think, you know, you were, you're, you're getting out on the roads and you're doing your workouts on the, the rail trail and, and things like that. And I think if you can, you know, get some long runs in on hillier terrain. And if we can, if, you know, some, some fartlek workouts and things like that, you're, you are, you're getting elevation change. I think that's going to be, those are going to be the keys. Cause I think you just, you know, you got to be ready for those hills. And I don't know that you can be completely ready for them, but you got to run them. Um, that's, the, that's for sure. You talk about negative splits, but like that course profile, especially with the chair, seems like it would be nearly impossible i know i'm gonna run some seven and a half eight minute miles through heartbreak so that's not going to be negative splits and i in my mind i feel like sometimes 
trying to decelerate the chair on downhill segments takes more energy for me personally, as opposed to maybe just leaning into the bars and kind of striding at 6.30, as opposed to trying to slow it down and hit my 6.50s. Um, do you think there's any validity to that where almost reining it in too much is like a lot of braking force on a downhill? Because that's um, I definitely agree with that. Um, it's funny because I'm, I'm trying to think about what I did at Boston the year we finished. and I'm, I'm having a hard time remember. But when you were talking about that earlier, I, you know, the, the, the only other marathon course I've run on is is Philly. And, you know, you, you run up a, a big hill at eight miles and then you, it levels out and then you go down this downhill. And I just remember, you know, people are flying down the hill and I'm hanging on for deal at life, trying to slow the chair down because I'm like, it's only at 10 miles and I don't want to be running yeah. five minute pace for two minutes when I've got 16 more miles to go. So I think it depends on, you know, the, the level, the, the, the grade of the hill and the length of the hill. I think, you know, if it's something that's just gradual, um, no, I don't think there's anything wrong with, 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 you know, kind of letting the chair loose and getting it. I just, you know, I think what, 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 what anybody wants to avoid is being intentional from, from the start about trying to pot, you know, time in the bank, as a lot of people like to say, being out hard and then saving it towards the end. I think, you know, I, and my best, solo marathon i i want to say i was about two minutes apart in my or it was like two and a half or three minutes apart so i was i was that two and a half three minutes faster the first half um and that was you know the best one i ran there but i i remember you know it is one of those things where if you're i remember going up you know heartbreak and all that kind of stuff and i'm like it's not really a thing when you're ready for it and then you go out too hard and you're like oh this is a real pain in the rear end yeah. so I, I think it's just gauging your effort so that you aren't just being completely stopped by those hills from 19 to 21. Um, yeah. Cause, yeah, cause I want to get, I mean, there. like I said, it takes some work to slow a chair down yeah. on a steep enough hill. I think, you know, after Wellesley, I'm, I'm pretty sure I just let it go. Cause that's a fairly steep downhill. Mm -hmm. The start of the race. Um, that's hard. It's a, it's a steep enough incline that you're like, what do I want to do here? Do I want to go out guns a blazing and let it fly yeah. or, or because it's the very beginning, do I want to try to hold it back? And it's, it's hard. <laughs> it's yeah. a tough decision. <laughs> I'll, I'll pretend that that's you saying that you're not going to complain about my positive splits in the impending Boston Marathon. I'll hold you to that. I'll pull this okay. <laughs> back up um, when you're complaining about it. But um, yeah, no, I, I definitely think that's the case. I want to get out on the course, um, really try to, I guess, understand what that 19 to 21 looks like and feels like, because um, it's almost like the fear of the unknown sometimes. Yeah. Um, I don't want to be thinking about those hills for the first two hours of the run. Right. Um, I want to be experiencing the crowds and experiencing the event as a whole. Um, and I am telling myself that at Boston is just going to be like an enjoyment thing for me. And I know I probably won't be able to uh, adopt that mindset once I get there, but um, I know I'm going to want to run as fast as I can, but I think I know that this isn't really a PR course for me. But maybe it is if I put together a good training block and things yeah. keep going together. I mean, I left some time out on the table with Martha's Vineyard in the last few miles. Um, so there's, I guess there's always a chance it could go well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it really depends on how your buildup goes and um, how the weather is. Weather plays a big part in Boston as well. But, you know, if you if you do run that course smart-ish, you know, and, and don't go out too crazy fast you know the last four miles are are runnable like very runnable and 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 fast if you're feeling good and and you've got a little something left in the tank um so yeah it just there's a lot of factors that go into boston and you just kind of <laughs> maybe uh transitioning quickly back to kind of wrap up um uh just inclusion and accessibility and running as a whole I think like running probably has the chance of being the most accessible sport. I mean, all you need is whatever you use to ambulate, uh, whether it's your legs or a chair, et cetera. So um, what do you think are the biggest barriers to inclusion within running or maybe from races? Uh, what, what have been like the accessibility barriers or the reservations that you've experienced race directors have towards being more inclusive? Common sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, um, you know, it, we're, we're, we started the whole reason, 
fusion inclusion started, um, you know, was because of a race director that just thought chairs were a liability thought, you know, anything other than running was a liability. Um, and you know, we still do most of our races are with, um, fusion racing and because it just, it works. Um, you know, I, I, I talked to the, the, it, it's, it's happened so many times that it's, it's not an issue. Um, and I, I think people just overthink it. Um, you know, we typically at most of our races, we probably have anywhere from say three to six chairs. We don't do, we don't do a wave start with the chairs. Um, you know, we will, we tell people to run where you think you're going to run. Um, my recommendation is to stay to the right or the left side. Um, but if you, you know, if, if you, cause I have some people who, who push and if they're not doing a wave start, they still want to be at the front. I'm like, well, well now you are a liability because you're not fast enough and people are going to go around. It's the same thing as having a little six, eight year old kid who's going to go out and sprint for the first 50 meters and then basically come to a stop. Um, you know, and if you start behind people, if they start you in the back, well, you know, if I got to start, you got to start behind in the back, then you're, you're going to in, greatly increase your chance of accidentally clipping somebody as you're trying to make your way through. Um, when we do have, um, our, all 11 chairs at a race, we usually will do, um, our, the, the timer from fusion racing, we'll do a wave start. Um, but I, I, I think it's just because it's, it's so commonplace that with them, there's no issue. And, so whenever we do something, if I ever have an organization that, um, you know, wants to go to a race that maybe we don't have on our schedule, if we branch out to Pennsylvania or Maryland or something, you know, I just give them, say, Hey, give them the courtesy and say, you know, this is what we want to do. These are what the chairs are. They can have my contact information talk to me. But I, I, I just think it's, it's common sense and not thinking it through, um, you know, because if, um, if people are out there and, and, and they're cognizant and they're paying attention to what they're supposed to do, there's no liability. I, I'll, I'll knock on wood here. I've, I've never hit anyone. We've never, I've never had somebody run somebody over. We, you know, we, we, nobody's run into us. It's never been an issue. So I think if you're just, you know, if it, like I said, if you show a little common sense, if you, if you go through and you communicate with your race director, but you know, we down here, I've, I've been fortunate to have, um, you know, some, some pretty fast people, ladies who've won overall female, um, you know, age groups and things like that. And so there, there's no issue with, um, you know, placing or results or anything like that. You don't have to figure it out if everybody's starting at the same time. Um, so I just, I think it's, it's common sense and the person's willingness to maybe take a whopping five minutes to talk about it and understand what's happening with duo team runners. But I think that, you know, just like generally speaking, people have different personalities and some of these timers have been doing it for so long that they, they don't embrace this. And I think the easiest thing for them to do is say it's a liability and no, you can't do it. And it's like, you have one five minute conversation. You can really say, Hey, it's like, it's easy. It's, it's, it's going to work. Like, you know, when we were down in Publix and I know we had a wave start, but what were there 64 chairs yeah. that morning or something like that? It worked. It, it, it works. <laughs> you just have to yeah. want it to work. I think. Yeah. And I think it, like, I would always prefer to be given like the choice, I guess, or to have, like, I always like when a race director is communicative, mm -hmm. uh, with the expectation. So like we got rejected from a marathon up in New York, uh, because they said there was too steep of a downhill segment. I've run plenty of downhill segments. Yeah. It's not an issue, but like yeah, for them to stupid. just say, for them to just be like, oh no, you can't. There's, there's a steep downhill without like taking a second to learn that like, oh, we're trying to run under three hours. Like we're obviously not an inexperienced duo. We're not going to like let go of the chair and send it off into the woods. Like yeah. uh, I can handle that. And if I, if you just give me the chance to tell you that I can handle it, then it's fine. And same thing with like races. I like to start with the pack, but I know some, sometimes they, they like to do the wave starts. I always just look at what the first turn is. So if it's mm -hmm. a right turn, I like to start on the left side because I find that people try to like cut the corner. And so if I'm on like yeah. the curb where the turn is, people will go in front of me and I have a wide turning radius. So I always just like to start on the outside. Uh, like the kids sprinting at the beginning is obviously honestly like the most dangerous thing. Um, yeah. So I like to stay to the side away from that and just be able to loop around people um and then once you're like once you're a couple hundred meters into the race typically people are disseminated far enough apart that you're able to to work your way around people at least in these in these smaller races maybe not in major marathons but um i guess we'll we'll find that out when the time comes but yeah so i guess 
communication expectations and just um, race directors not having biases as opposed to what people can and can't do with the chairs and instead just getting to know the runners and asking them what they need maybe. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's, it's not hard. Like you said, you, you hit the nail on the head there. It's just a couple conversations and you can <laughs> figure this out pretty easily. <laughs> well, I, I know a hard part of the build for uh, Boston with it being a, an April race is training through the winter uh, in Massachusetts. I know I'll be logging a lot of treadmill miles and that sometimes means that I can't always do my long runs uh, with Jacob, which is what I like to do because um, I like practicing with the chair and, and having him with me um, keeps me a lot more mentally engaged with the run. So I know some of those things will be challenges, um, but looking forward to uh, navigating the next few months and, and seeing what we can do in April. Do you plan on coming up to watch? I do. Sweet. Excellent. So you can uh, tell me to slow down after eight miles, <laughs> get you out on the course. <laughs> All right. Well, Steve, thanks for, um, thanks for joining me today. What makes me one of your top two most annoying athletes and who is number two? Oh boy. I mean, <laughs> you know, it's just, like I said, it's a, uh, you, you, you're you growing up, you're growing up. You're getting a little older. You've got kids now you're getting exactly. a little wiser. So really? I think, you no, know, it, it, every, every buildup has gotten a little bit better. Um, so, you know, as, as those excuses for not being able to do things or, or stuff like that, they've certainly gone by the wayside. Um, so, you know, we, we figured each other out. I think yeah, <laughs> we've come a long way. <laughs> You're a lot more pleasant to talk to than text. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, I was well, sorry. I don't use emojis really. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I always tell people, I'm like, you can interpret my text any way you want and you're not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if you threw emojis and it would, it would go a long way. So maybe you consider that, but I'll try, man. <laughs> All right, Steve. Thank you. No problem, man. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the AdaptX podcast. Our effort to amplify the ideas of our guests and create more inclusive and accessible industries is futile unless these episodes reach a larger audience. If you enjoyed our discussion today, please leave us a rating or a review on whichever platform you use. And if you would like to learn more about Adaptex, the course that we teach to health and fitness professionals and the projects that our organization is working on, you can subscribe to our newsletter through our website, www.adaptex.org. Until next Monday.